Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. We have Scott Seasler from Mad Barn with us again to talk about forage alternatives and other equine nutrition topics. If you didn't see the first few podcasts with him, I highly suggest going to watch those before or after this one because they're great. And he has a whole lot of information on equine nutrition that is fantastic. So, uh, Scott, thanks for joining us again. I really appreciate it. And I'll let you take it away and you can introduce yourself. Yeah, Shelby, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I think this is yeah, this is number three, right? Uh, yeah, I do appreciate it. it's been a, it's been a lot of fun the last two, and hopefully uh, people are finding some value in uh, in the podcast. Uh, I'm the owner and founder of Mad Barn. Uh, we've grown substantially in I guess the last number of years to a considerable size now, where we're providing upwards I think of 200 to 300 diet evaluations per week. Uh, for clients or potential clients or just people interested in their horses' nutrition, uh, really fulfilling, I guess, the promise that, uh, of why we started Mad Byron to provide the best nutrition and the ne- best nutrition information for uh, horse owners. Perfect. Yeah, that's oh, that's insane. So many diet analysis each week, but it's so helpful for everyone who does them. I did several for my whole herd, and it was really helpful getting all that information back. So the reason why I selected this topic is that um, in my area, like the Fraser Valley of BC, last last year in the summertime, we had a massive drought and it resulted in like two months without any rain, which is unheard of here because it's a rainforest. (laughs) So it burnt all the grass and people who had their horses out on grass, there wasn't really anything for them to eat. And of course, we couldn't cut as much hay. And then to add to the problem in the wintertime, we had what is called an atmospheric river, which is like an insane amount of rain. Um, all in a short period of time. I think we ended up having like 300 millimeters of rain over the course of 48 hours. And this flooded a lot of places. It resulted in people losing their hay storage because their hay got wet and they'd have to throw it out, um, which caused even more of a shortage. And then now this year, we're having a little bit of the opposite problem where it's now June. And typically by June, we would have had a few dry weeks where people could do their first cuts. But it's been so wet that no one has been able to cut. The only fields that I've seen hayed are for uh, silage for cows because you can do that when it's wet. Um, But we're we're very late on getting our first cut in and following a hay shortage. That's not the greatest. So I wanted to do the forage alternatives because of that because I think that it's going to keep getting harder to get hay. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I guess, you know, you brought up some very key weather uh, factors that have happened in BC in the past 12 months, which have been significant, obviously. Um, you know, I'm from Ontario, and although the rest of uh, Canada thinks Ontario only thinks of themselves, we do get news from the rest of Canada. And we've, we were keenly aware of some of the flooding that was happening in, in BC. Um, but you bring up a point about the silages for cattle. Like, it's one thing we really don't do a lot of in North America, and that's feed fermented forages to horses, which you can. Now they're there are some issues with it. The main, the biggest one being botulism they talk about. Um, and it's certainly, you know, when you're in a, I don't want to call it a emergency per se, but it's really not an option because it takes a lot of fort, like planning and storage mechanisms to do um, hailage or silage uh, to feed your horses. So that's not really an alternative per se when you're in, when you're kind of looking, when you when you can't do hay or you're looking for alternatives, but it is something to consider. And it's something, uh, you know, and even for metabolic horses and things like that, the fermentation process basically takes all the sugar out. So it makes it, a, you know, automatically makes it a low um, 
sugar forage and it can still be quite high in energy which is is great for horses that's super cool so with the haylage if it's like i know you mentioned in the last podcast that for like horses to avoid the botulism risk you have to cut it a little bit higher off the ground um to avoid getting like any dead animals or anything that could cause an issue with the botulism um but with regards to like having the like so if, for example if you got like the round bale haylage and you fed it outside in the sun would it pose a threat to the horses being out in the sun um and heating up while being damp like that yeah for sure i mean there's feed out issues like you can't just you wouldn't just drop around bale of haylage and leave it for a week out there because yes it would absolutely start heating you would get uh i mean when you make haylage it's an anaerobic fermentation that's why they wrap it in plastic or put in a silo or something and then so as soon as you expose it to air you're changing that fermentation pattern away from these lactic acid bacteria into largely mold producing uh yeast uh, things will start to get like yeast and molds will start to grow on it, which then eventually will have deleterious effects on the health of your horse. So you wouldn't be able to do it like that. It would, you know, and this I guess comes back to would have to, something like this would have to be planned, and yeah. you'd have to have strategies in place and to deal with it and feed it. It's just, um, but longer term, you know, is you know, like there's bigger structural changes that happen. Like fewer, fewer people make small square bales. You know, even just from the labor standpoint. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the hay comes from cattle farms, you know, they're obviously getting bigger and bigger. Uh, so they moved, they move away from these things that are more appropriate for hay. Now the horse industry is a large industry. So there are people who accommodate it and grow specifically for them, but it's not like it used to be back in the day, every day he had cows around, had small squares up in the loft. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't exist anymore, right? So yeah. there's the structural changes along with the, these kind of like um, climate-related changes that we're referring to today that kind of drive some of these things that may make horse owners want to start looking for more permanent solutions yeah. to depending on the dry hay or small square bales anyways for dry hay. And I guess that's what we're, you know, some of those what we'll talk about yeah. here. Yeah, I think it would be cool if more people did start to cut haylage for horses because like most of the people that are doing it, it's just for cows um, and like the cattle farmers are the only ones buying it right now. But it would be neat to see because if it, yeah, like you said, with the lower sugar, that sounds like a plus. And I'm assuming it would probably also be good for horses just to get extra liquid into their diet that they wouldn't get from dry hay. So it'd be interesting to see if we start moving towards that, because especially in the climate that I live in with how wet it is, it would it definitely would make more sense because our climate's kind of similar to like the UK. And I know you mentioned in the last podcast that they do more of the feeding haylage there. Yeah, they do. Again, and that's probably why, because it's just it's hard. It's so hard. You don't get enough sun and dry days to actually make dry hay. And like now with some of the way they make haylage, Today, you you know, you can cut it in the morning and be harvesting in the afternoon. Um, and so it's a one-day process almost. Again, nothing, none of this has been adapted for horses that I'm aware of. Uh, but there's, there is the possibility to adapt this kind of style to the scale that would be workable on horse farms probably. It's just, it really hasn't been done to this point. Yeah. Yeah, largely here there are there are some companies that are packaging it um uh, you run into some just like price issues because you're like shipping water is obviously very expensive and, yeah um so that's difficult but uh there's definitely you know there's people kind of cracking at it a little bit 
the other thing they do in the UK, and I don't know if we talked about this, I think we did talk about this in the last podcast, and talking about forage alternatives is straw. Oh, yeah. Uh, so and so that... straw? Pardon? They feed straw there, or do they mix it with, like, the haylage? Uh, well, they'll just feed straw as a portion, not as the sole fire, like, uh, okay. forage source. But basically, and, and as we kind of get in this conversation, we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, you know, you look at forage alternatives, they're largely... The issue isn't, you know, nutrition so much like replacing hay from a nutritional standpoint. It's really the behavioral needs of the horse that you are trying to fill when you're using a forage replacement. The nutrition side, like from a chemical standpoint, to give their actual nutrient needs is easy. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what we're going to struggle with in any forage alternative system uh, is meeting their behavioral needs. And that's the need to forage for you know, up to 12 hours or longer, 12, you know, 10 to 12 hours is kind of the minimum or what you would consider baseline level for them to need to forage per day. How do you meet that requirement? Using something like bee pulp, uh, you know, brands, hulls, or these fibrous fractions of plant material where the horse can consume them so fast, um, it's not really meeting that foraging behavior. So, how do we make that balance? And then you know, I think, again, we talked about this on the other podcast. You start, you know, looking at some of these paddock paradises where it's just like paddock enrichment. So they're doing other things besides, I guess, eating. Mm -hmm. But then the feeding schedule, be, you know, becomes a bit onerous too, where you're, and I'll wrap this up in like more succinctly, I guess, at the end or later on. But, you know, your feeding schedule becomes where you're, you know, you're almost having to feed them every four hours or yeah. something to get you know you know keep make sure they keep eating kind of consistent flow through the gut even and um just you know generally making them happy uh like if you look at the work uh, alice did back in like i think it was 2000 <clears throat> that group was looking at a lot of just feeding behavior feeding differences between high concentrate high forage and one of the probably the most obvious or i think the most uh the greatest observations that came from it was when they did a high forage versus compared to a low forage and they basically just watched what the horses did and uh, they're like okay well so on the high forage they spent you know i think it was only 40 percent of their time eating so even when that wasn't that high forage because that doesn't get you 12 hours but you know most yeah. of the time spent eating and then on the low forage or high concentrate they only spent like 25 percent of their time actually eating oh, wow. but then when you looked at what they did the rest of the time <laughs> on the high concentrate they basically ate their own feces in their bedding so Aww. it just showed this drive for the horse still like even though their nutritional requirement was met you know with the high concentrate feed they still want to just eat and so mm -hmm. you need to find something for them to kind of fulfill that time preferably yeah. besides eating wood shavings in their own manure because that's not a desire yeah so straw would be an option then like if you had to end up feeding more like hay replacers like beet pulp or like soaked hay pellets or hay cubes um yeah. you could add in straw or something to like what like what volume of that is safe to feed to them <laughs> that's a good question i'm not because uh, there's a lot of factors that go into that i mean chop length you get it too like if they get it too long and they don't chew it enough you can you know you start to run impaction colics not necessarily from the straw per se but maybe not enough water intake because the straw is so dry yeah or their dentition is just not quite right and the straw is, really has that waxy coating on it then you can physically chop it for them like i mean there's uh companies actually you know selling bedding in those plastic bags so there's a really nice dust extracted straw which we actually recommend on a regular basis for your clients 
as a way for your weight loss. And like, use this. It's already dust extracted. It's really clean. It's really good straw. Um, but if you chop it too fine, that also runs the risk of impaction color from having like way too fine a material going into them. Um, so the maximum amount, like generally just as a safeguard, we say 20% of the total drive matter intake. So if your horse is going to, you know, the average 500 kilo horse at maintenance is going to need around 10 kilos of drive matter, we'd say up to two kilos of straw in the ration. And you can do things like, um, you know, feed the straw in a bag, for instance, like let's say you're in a situation where you just can't get hay. So you're like, I have no hay. I need to feed this horse. You know, something like, okay, put 10 to 15% of the straw allotment in a bag. Don't give it all at once, you know, preferably even twice or four times a day, um, just to, again, spread out this thing. And then take the other 5% and in your beet pulp mash or your whatever you're going to use, uh, whether it's a brand beet pulp or, um, you know, some grain byproduct, essentially, or forage that's been pelleted or cubed mix the actual chopped straw into that blend too to slow them down because funny enough like if you compare beet pulp to like pelleted haze or like pelleted timothy or cubed uh timothy the horses actually eat the pelleted uh forage faster than they eat the beet pulp crazy so if you're talking again about you're like you want to fill some time basically like, i'm fine trying to fight feeds to fill some time this pelleted forage actually they consume faster which is strange i don't know if it's a Particle size thing, a hydration rate, I'm not exactly sure why, but it just is. But by adding even just a little bit, like 5% or less of that mash and straw will really increase the amount of chewing time, which increases saliva production and just increases the time it takes them to consume it. So there's, you know, little strategies that you can kind of throw in there to increase your feeding times, even with some of these forage alternatives that you may use. Yeah, that that's really great. And then with like the beet pulp, it's like, is there... Are there risk factors depending on how much you feed? Because if you were make if you ran out of hay, for example, and you needed to give the horses something until you can source more hay, how much is safe to give them, um, like on a day as a daily ration? <laughs> These are good questions. So again, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into this. Like you can adapt a horse to eat. You know, I would say easily thirty percent of their dry matter in beet pulp without too much issue. The question is how quickly that change happens. You have to remember, like a lot of these byproducts, bee pulp, soy hulls, uh, the brands have really rapidly fermentable fractions in them. So when they hit the hindgut, they, you know, they're readily digestible to the bacteria and the gut will adapt to it over time. But if you just went, say, I have hay today, tomorrow I don't, I'm going to feed you know, Scott on this podcast said I can feed 30%, so I'm whacking three kilos of dry matter of beet pulp to this horse. You're going to have problems. I mean, mm -hmm. any transition to feed that drastic is going to create issues. If you are questioning, you're like, ah, I got this much hay left. I'm really questioning whether I can get some. I'm going to start to increase my beet pulp inclusion now. Um, you know, it would easily be able to go 20, 30% inclusion of replacement Um and again, these, you know, these are situations we use rule of thumbs and nutritionists and people in general. We always like, we're super cautious. Like we never want to be like, oh yeah, just feed your whole diet, be pulp, it would be totally fine. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, a lot of times you get in situations and people end up doing things like that and the horses do survive. And you're like, and then you find out you're like, you can, and then you, you know, and we may find out some deleterious side effects of doing these types of things. But as like a general rule, like, you know, that 20%, 30% level 
The other big thing you have to consider when doing any of this is you really need to balance this diet still, right? Like it's not just I've run out of hay, I'm gonna replace it with beet pulp. Like if your average hay has a digestible energy content of say it was just two megacals per kilo. So just to put this in perspective for the horse. I get most people like don't think in megacals, but your your 20 megacals is well over your maintenance re, uh, requirement for a 500 kilo horse. So, so that's your average hay you would have in BC. It was probably even a little higher in BC just because of the quality of the grass there. You take and then switch that to bee pulp, which will be pushing 3.3 megacals per kilo or even just three megacals per kilo, depending on how you determine it. But the point being, it's a, you know, it's a third again higher in energy content. Mm-hmm. So you got to you have to account for that when you're when you're changing these feedstuffs and the energy balance that you're changing. Then you also you know you do need to obviously account for the minerals and the protein. Um, some of the byproducts like bee pulp, citrus pulp. All the horses don't love citrus pulp. Um, will be quite low in protein. Others like uh, while you're at West, you may get a wheat distillers uh, will be quite high in protein. So you have to be careful about how much you feed. Of something like that that's really high in protein because you don't want excessive amounts of protein going into the horse so again is you know you know this is why we do what we do it's, it's it's really important to talk to a qualified nutritionist particularly if you're making big changes in your diet and what ingredients you are going to include and how you're going to include them and how you're going to transition uh from a given diet to another one for sure. That totally makes sense. It's it's good to know how much you can feed of like the extra forage stuff if you have to, because it, it, it does also really suck that like the hay replacements that they have, like the uh, hay cubes and pellets, that the horses can eat them so quickly because they're not really like hay replacers then because they don't serve the same purpose, I guess. And I figured they eat them way faster because when they like my guys get them with their supplement meals, they'll have the soaked forage meals. Um, and like they eat them way faster than they could possibly eat like a flake of hay. Um, but <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Like it, it, it sucks that horses are like so much more finicky than other animals because like <laughs> the hay and the grass thing is like a pretty big deal. And like here at least too, the problem is that like through the winter, you can't really count on having grass unless you have tons of land because it's right. too wet and they tear it, tear it up. So um it like it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens because i think a lot of people are going to end up needing to downsize or they're going to have to find different means of like helping their horses get forage because i think that there's going to end up being some issues especially if we get another bad year again through the summer and stuff i'm hoping that it won't be like that but like yeah it's kind of a scary thing because it's not just bc that's been having the shortages it's so many surrounding areas where we would typically outsource hay from as well yeah yeah i mean yeah it's a it's an issue like forage is always like even just you know you're in a situation where you have shortages and then other places not just shortages just the price right like when forages get really expensive and uh stretch people's budgets and uh it gets hard to do those you know feed feed them uh <laughs> your herd like it's just uh yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah the prices have gone up and they're like astronomical now i still don't know like i like i haven't tried it obviously because i wouldn't want to but i don't know 
how much like how the price would compare to do like forage alternatives in comparison to hay if you started to phase out how much hay you're feeding but like the price per bale and whatnot here has become like it, it's gone way way up like i've seen some dealers that have almost doubled their prices from last year um to try to like account for i guess the losses that they would have had from not being able to cut as much so yeah things are going to get a little crazy i think so it'll be yeah it'll be interesting to see how people start to adapt because I would say in my area, like there definitely are a lot of cows, but like Langley, the area that I'm in is like the horse capital of BC. So yeah. I would imagine that a lot of the hay dealers are probably selling to horse owners. Uh, so if it, if we keep getting like wet seasons, um, I'm, yeah, I'm interested to see if they start adapting by doing like what you mentioned earlier with the fermentable forages and kind of start figuring out ways to do that safely and make it practical. Cause uh, if the weather keeps staying like this, it's <laughs> unlikely that they're going to keep having the same yields that they would have in years past. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, who knows? I mean, like this may push somebody to become super innovative and put like, uh, you know, a fermentation system up and then, then dry for you. I mean, alfalfa pellets largely, uh, you know, they come off the field fairly wet. They go through a dryer for the most part and then get pelleted. Um, if you threw one more step in there and fermented it first, like if you did grasses like that, I don't know if, you know, it's feasible, but again, there may be a market for it eventually. Um, if you know, the problem persists, but like when you talk about bag forages and stuff like that, they're, they're still, you know, it's still the preference probably like if you're looking for a forage alternative, that's probably still your number one preference. And yes, it's absolutely going to cost more than a bale of hay. Um, anytime you know you get people getting their hands on it has to be handled more uh mm -hmm. there's processing involved it, it, you know and i know like when you say you know square bales are getting very expensive but when you actually figure out per kilo um hay tent this will always be the most uh affordable or most economical option yeah even when it is expensive because typically even when hay prices are going up so is everything else yeah uh, sure. so it's just a you know kind of a matter of fact uh, of, of, this, of where we're at I guess today yeah uh, but to, the other thing too you know a lot of people soak uh, their forages or bee pulp which trying to avoid choke usually is the reason uh, they do that because anybody's had a horse that's choke it's a terrible experience and you know mm -hmm. of course you want to try to avoid that but the downside to doing it is it also speeds up ingestion yeah <laughs> so you know, you're looking at forage alternatives and you're like, okay, well, I want to slow this horse down um, eating, but I need to soak this. And that's just going to speed up the ability for this horse to eat it because it doesn't need to saturate it anymore. It's already saturated. So you've taken that whole step of, you know, the mastication process out um, or done mm -hmm. it for them essentially. But the, you know, it's still, I would say that's still your number one choice. If you're, if you can't, or you're really limited on, hay uh you know try to stretch the hay as far as possible by adding a bit of straw go with the four you know the either the pellets or the cube forages and then then you can start looking at some of the grain byproducts or bee pulp uh mm -hmm. to add in as replacements to start stretching um that and then look at unique ways just to like, essentially you know improve the welfare of your horse yeah. uh by the fact that they're not going to be eating all the time would it work then? And like, and the, this is not like nutrition wise, but for the behavioral aspect, if like, uh, like as a way to adapt to less hay, there is like 
if you're going to feed soak stuff, for example, is like almost like, like, I want to say like puzzle feeders, like almost like what for dogs where they have to kind of like work <laughs> a little harder to get the stuff. But for horses, it would of course have to be different in a way where they can still get the food fairly easily, but it slows them down. And then kind of just moving those things around their turnout area or like planting, like would planting like horse safe plants that are not grass potentially help fulfill the foraging need, even though they won't be consuming the volume that they would with hay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I encourage you like any, any variety into your paddocks, always a great idea uh, in terms of getting something else to eat. I'm not sure you're going to be able to fulfill their foraging needs with it. Um, but like more to your point, like not the puzzles or things. I think there's lots of inventive ways to do things like that, to keep the horse busy. And that's really all you're doing, right? You're just keeping them busy doing what they want to be doing. That's eating. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be shut with their head shoved in a bale of hay. You know, years ago, well, not that many years ago, we were looking at uh, basically, you know, those lick tubs of molasses that the cattle use, you know, doing something like that with the horses. And if you put like a fiber solution into that kind of lick roll, you know, that's something that would, you know, could keep a horse going for probably a number of hours, giving them a little bit of fiber as they did it, uh, you know, keeping the hindgut happy and really making a balance. It's just like, it really hasn't been tested, but the, the, again, this is where, you know, a lot of innovation always comes out of the field. It doesn't have to come mm -hmm. out of uni university. So I would encourage people, yeah, to experiment with different things to uh, enrich the environment for the horse and delay the time it takes them to actually get the food. I mean, we've been doing it for dogs for a long time, give them a ball with treats. They got to roll around forever to, until it falls out. Yeah, do, yeah. There's no, there's no reason you can't do that. With hay. I think there actually is that for horses on the market now. Yeah. The hay balls are a thing now. Um, yeah. Sure. You know, just something for them to do. Like that's really what you want versus standing there, staring at their stall, eating wood eating the bedding and their manure, right? Like you're just yeah trying to f fill an activity that is similar to foraging. Yeah. And I think the, yeah, the, the behavioral thing is what I would be the most worried about if we had a shortage, because I would like, it like, it, it just seems like an absolute nightmare. The idea of not being able to access hay and just ha seeing how upset the horses would get. Uh, so this has been really helpful because it gives ideas on how to potentially cope with like any challenges that might end up happening due to the the shortages we've been having. As as I say, uh, you know, crisis is just a is just opportunity. Like, not this is necessarily crisis per se, but yeah, opportunity to experiment and try new things and kind of um, do things a little differently. And again, within the like confines of reason, um, like as I mentioned earlier. To meet the nutritional needs is actually relatively straightforward. Consult a nutritionist and like with your idea, like I'm gonna this is how much you're gonna do, like you know, if it's the horse ball, for instance, and it's how much you're gonna put in here, and hopefully that'll keep them busy for this long. And this is what we're actually gonna feed in total. Is that balanced? And you're like, Yeah, now you sort out how to make that activity last, you know, eight to twelve hours, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, that would be, yeah, I think that's the thing is the all of the slow feed options that are out there right now are very much centered around feeding like a fibrous hay rather than anything soaked or anything pelleted. Yeah. So that would be the challenge, but that that that's a, a good idea because I think 
that like regardless of whether the shortages last if there was feeding options that started to be created for that those types of things would make it a little easier for people who have horses that can't like can't chew and consume normal hay in the same way as like a healthy horse could like i know a lot of elderly horses that are on mostly soaked diets um yep. And in a case like that, I guess, would you say that like the not have like not being able to chew properly or not having teeth would slow them down enough where it's like more viable to do a soaked feeding, uh, like a soaked feeding diet with those types of horses who have dentition issues. Um, and obviously, in those cases, it's out of necessity because they can't consume regular hay. Um, but would would that slow them down enough? Or do you, is that still a problem that you see for horses who can't access regular forage diets? Yeah, like it definitely slows. Obviously, the dentition issue slows them down considerably. Um, and then, I mean, you're kind of putting a few different variables in here because a lot of horses with dentition issues are quite old. So maybe not being as active isn't as big of an issue for them. Just their activity levels are just naturally declining, anyways. Um, and so, yeah, it does, but it does usually take them quite a long time to consume the feed. And so, but it, it would still be an issue, I think, anytime you're taking away kind of the again the ability to eat for 10 to 12 hours and not and i'm not aware though if anybody's done any of this work in elderly horses to see does it does it really negatively impact them to have the shortened foraging time or they content enough just to eat this basically soup that they're being consuming per day it ends up being like quite a large quantity of soup for those horses though yeah so, yeah, so it does take them quite some time to get through it yeah Sure. The other thing I am, and so again, I think almost every nutrition talk I give or talk about nutrition, salt comes into here. Um, so this is one thing, you know, you're talking about soaking and we can like reduce the amount of water we add to it and avoid things like choke by using salt uh, on everything essentially. Again, you want to meter it out so it's not crazy levels because you don't want to stop them from eating completely because you made mm -hmm. too salty. But by adding salt, you're going to force them to drink right it's you know it's no different than us if we eat something really salty we reach for the glass of water to basically balance it out and the horse will do very much the same thing where you know if you're adding a bit of salt into that uh forage blend that you've uh, watered down um it's going to slow them down or and maybe you don't water down quite as much so it does slow them down more but by adding the salt they'll go drink more water and be less concerned with things like choke um or any other issues related with consuming some of these dry uh, byproducts for like the average horse how much salt would you recommend like if you're adding salt to like their food to help prevent things like choke like how what would the ideal amount be well the requirement's gonna be one ounce a day um so you're you know looking at a full ounce uh to me because most all the feeds of the horse consume really have very low levels of sodium uh, mm -hmm. and so essentially we need to supplement almost all their salt requirement but to, in a case where you're like, well, I'd actually want to use the salt to restrict them a little bit. I have no issue going up to two ounces a day of salt into getting them to eat that. And, there, and this is where you get run into some issues. People, you know, taking human dietary information and trying to train you know, on the horse, worrying about health effects of too much salt. Your horse is suffering from too little salt all the time. You're, you're not, it's highly unlikely that you're going to overdo it with any reasonable amount of salt you're giving them. Yeah, but I would say easily, like, yeah. easily up to two ounces a day is fine. Yeah.
And then if they're working, would you feed more salt? Because I know they sweat out a lot of their salt. So on like hot days or when they're sweating or working, it does it is that amount like accounting for that as well? Or is that just like a regular horse at rest? So the one ounce is just a regular horse at rest being their daily requirement. Uh, yeah, as soon as you start increasing the temperature and workload, like their salt requirement goes up dramatically. It's the, it is the one nutrient that uh, increases the most like realistically as a percentage more than energy, more than protein, more than anything is their uh, salt requirement goes up because they are one of the <laughs> one of the sweatiest species uh, in the you know of all mammals and real like legitimately they they sweat more than basically any other mammal per unit of body weight. Um, and, and within that sweat is a lot of salt. Uh, anybody that's had a, a horse knows, sees the salt stains in the summertime on everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, again, for a horse working in the summertime, you like two ounces would like, a lot of times it's just, it's just meeting the requirement um, if you're feeding two ounces a day. So you, even for those horses, you could start adding a little bit more. They like these, it is the one nutrient where horses do have some nutritional knowledge. So, when you're short, they'll seek it out. You know, you'll see them licking a lot of stuff. It's probably like they're probably low on salt. Uh, and this is why I really, really like loose free choice salt because a lot, the most horses will just balance it themselves. Uh, you know, when you work them, as long as they have access to clean, fresh water, they'll go consume the amount of salt they need and uh, balance it out. When you're feeding loose salt free choice, like what type of setup do you feed it in? Because I like I tried that, but my horses pick up like the bowls that they're in and like fling them around. So <laughs> they don't they don't or, or if it rains, then the salt's just gone. So it, I, I've been I've been trying to brainstorm the best course of like I was thinking of drilling my bowl down into their feeder or on a wall or something so they can't grab it and throw it places. But, um, yeah, how, how do you feed it? Well, if you have, like, uh, run-in sheds or anything like that or any, anywhere where, like, you do have a corner where you could mount a bowl, like a corner-mounted just small bowl, it's fantastic. Because uh, you, you don't necessarily want a huge amount in there. Obviously, salt absorbs moisture very quickly. Um, and then, particularly, if they're licking, it's going to turn into a block. So it's something you kind of want to renew regularly. You don't need it to be this huge tub. Uh, so, okay. like, a corner a corner thing of like a stainless steel bowl or a rubber bowl that yeah you screw to the wall is a great way to do it um or even if they're in stalls for part of the day uh, in a corner of a stall then i would if it's in a stall i'd be more apt to use a rubber um one in the corner okay perfect yeah but yeah the small and like the smaller size right you don't want this big huge thing that they can yeah because they're gonna play they're gonna play with it right like regardless of their salt in it or not it's just <laughs> chew on it and try and throw it around and stuff so yeah get into everything that's yeah that's great to know about the salt yeah because that's an ounce of salt a day is crazy because that's like a shot glass is that not like a shot glass full of salt <laughs> yeah it is crazy so that's just, in, like, in that's your basic like, requirement how much salt do people get because i know we don't sweat out as much salt i'm gonna look this up quickly i think it's one gram a day is what you're wow that's that's yeah. So it'd be two grams, roughly two grams of so two to three grams of salt. You're one gram of sodium, I think. And pe- people probably go over their salt requirements rather than under. I'm assuming because. Well, um, that and that is the issue with humans, like, because like, as all, every processed food manufacturer knows, fat, sugar, and salt are the three things humans crave, and so they put too much of all those things in there. Um, you know, like you, it doesn't take a research program to 
look at Western society and go, what's what's wrong with our diets here? Um, As much as we try to make it complicated, it really isn't that complicated. Um, And so, you know, there's sodium in everything, like every processed food or like even going to restaurants, you know, world-class chefs want your food to taste good. They want your steak to taste good. So they salt it Mm -hmm. um, because you're going to enjoy it. So we're at the opposite end of the spectrum of sodium intake and we don't, in our, we don't sweat a lot of salt like horses do. We sweat water, like lots of water, but uh, it's, it's a hypotonic solution. Whereas horses Mm -hmm. are iso to almost hypertonic at times, uh, what they're sweating. And that just means basically they sweat out a lot more salt where we sweat out very little salt. Do you know if there's like a functional purpose for them sweating out that much salt? Because it seems like kind of a flaw (laughs) in their system if they lose (laughs) that much of their salt. Yeah, that's a great question, actually. And I'm unprepared to answer that at this time. I do. uh, I've read some stuff on it. And, you know, there's talk that like, you know, we've said their salt requirements actually too high. Although this gets into problems because, again, the majority of diets we see were really deficient in the amount of salt the horses are consuming. Uh, but in some cases where we were doing like uh, perform, um, 100 mile endurance horses, we're like we're probably on the high end of estimating how much we need to replace in a 100 mile race. Um, and I'm getting away from your question that you asked, of, is there a functional purpose to it? Surely there is some evolutionary advantage to it. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be this way. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know what it is. No, I wonder if it's uh, something to do with keeping bugs off or something. If it has anything <laughs> to do with that or cooling or something, because that would at least make sense. But I mean, their digestive systems and stuff in general doesn't necessarily seem like it, it was created in the most best way to like because <laughs> they just have so many more problems than even um, cows, from what I gather, like digestive wise. So horses well, are flawed species. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they're flawed. The domestication of the horses, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, it's a very short window, and it could be maybe uh, what we've asked them to do is not what they were evolved to necessarily exactly do, and we've introduced some issues into this uh, situation. Yeah. So do you think then, like with like the digestive issues we see with horses, like I'm guessing the most common ones would be ulcers and colic. Yeah. Do you think that if we, it, like, if the horse world across like as an industry kept horses in like a forage based lifestyle and like where they can move around more that those issues would not be anywhere near as rampant as they're seen now yeah i definitely i think i think we underestimate what stresses horses again you know get back to the salt conversation sometimes we uh, anthropomorphize horses and we're like well, whatever humans need or want must be the same as horses and I, and I don't think it is the same like well, I know it's not, obviously. Um, there's similarities, but like things as little as uh, changing paddock mates. To mm-hmm. us, it may seem like an inconsequential change. But you're talking about a herd animal that has a very distinct structure in the wild. And we disturb that all the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we give it enough credence to how much we're disturbing it. And think about it. Just again you get kind of too used to how everything is today or and not you know really looking at the bigger picture so so i think there is a lot of things we could do to minimize ulcers like when we when you look at exercising horses it's probably going to be an issue just due to the like the physical nature of 
you know, splashing acid up on the gut when they run. I'm not sure we're ever going to get around that um, from the exercising horse standpoint, but that's only actually, you know, we're talking about these horses that are working like six, seven days a week at a high level. That's really a very small percentage of the population of horses. Whereas when you start looking at the ulcer incidence, it's a very high percentage of the population yeah. of horses. So there's clearly, um, as I mentioned, a lot of these other stressors that are impacting these horses that are yeah. creating some of these issues. And certainly the feeding situation too. Uh, you know, and I just mentioned feeding straw, straw versus hay. Uh, horses are more prone to ulcers feeding straw. There's, you know, again, there's less buffering capacity and other issues uh, with hay. Now, now, as I say that, this is probably what people are going to remember. So I, I want to backtrack a little bit straw is still a good alternative if you're short on forage it does a lot of things and it does them well it's just one of the minor side differences i guess would be a slightly higher incidence of ulcers in yeah that cases. makes sense i'm guessing that's probably like more relevant the more straw you feed in place of hay because uh, would hay kind of help balance it if you're mixing it in hay or would it still kind of carry the same risk I think, well, I think a lot of it's buffering. So yeah, as you put more and more straw in, the risk is probably getting increased. Like, you know, you take alfalfa as being the most buffering. And again, you talk about ulcer, ulcers and horses, alfalfa is one of the most common recommendations, including some level, not as the full sole forage source, because it buffers so well. Um, and it's a natural uh, kind of buffer. And then even some of the very like, uh, I call them very lignified or high, uh, fiber haze would you know tend towards more straw on the straw scale in terms of i guess incidence of ulceration uh, when feeding so it's not just a straw thing it's more of the chemical composition and how well the forage actually buffers so which haze would be kind of more like straw where they'd carry the higher risk of ulcers are there specific types that are kind of like not like i guess if you were gonna like rate top tier haze <laughs> are there certain types that are kind of like i would stay away from these grasses in particular no honestly no again it wouldn't the ulcer risk uh like when you're looking at it from that point of, of forage i wouldn't really even bring that in the equation in terms of my feeding practice i'd be more concerned again with meeting the nutritional needs where I want to select these forages because my horse is doing this level of work and this is what is required to fulfill its eating requirement and its nutrient needs. Mm -hmm. And then maybe it's like a tertiary consideration, like, okay, well, is this, you know, is this a higher risk of the horse getting ulcers? And it's not, it's not really, because again, if you, if you're meeting its foraging needs, it's not, it's not a big risk anyways. Um, there's, it's a, it's a lot of the other management factors that are going to be bigger risks than the actual composition of the forages you're feeding. If like, if a horse person was like planting a grass field or a field that they <laughs> intended to hay, would there be like choice grasses to pick to plant in there um, in specific? Like in terms, like not, not for selling purposes, cause I know there's probably ones that are way more lucrative, but for like fulfilling <laughs> dietary needs. Again, and I think you, you brought this up last time. I probably skirted the question then too. I'm certainly not an agronomist. This is not my uh, area of expertise, but I will say this, like every area is different. I mean, you kind of need to balance what your soil weather conditions are like to what grows best there to what, and then match it to uh, what your horse needs as closely as you can. You know, like in like where I live in Southwestern Ontario, 
it's very rare to get like a pure grass then because you essentially you get one cut of mm -hmm. pure grass and then it just droughts out for the rest of the summer and you get nothing back but if you plant alfalfa in the mix you know you'll tend to at least get two cuts off wow. of it and so your agronomic consideration is such that <laughs> we need to mix some things in there uh, to make sure it grows and we get in a volume that we can actually feed our horses uh, and then we can balance out to that. But like, I mean, the typical horse, you know, the Brome, the, the Timothys and things like that are all good grasses to grow um, for your horses. What I would like to see as much as anything in consideration would be stage of maturity that these things are cut. And I get that a lot of horse people don't have control over this because, you know, you only have one or two horses. You're just buying hay from a dealer. You have no say over um, when they're cutting and then mm -hmm. time of day even, right? Like, Again, if you want low sugar hay, the best time of day to cut is in the morning. Mm -hmm. And this goes contrary because for a cattle farmer, you want to cut late afternoon when your sugar content's the highest because you're trying to get as much nutrition into this hay as possible. Whereas for the vast majority of ho horse owners now, the hay's not the nutrition. Like, it, although it's providing the majority of the nutrition, it's not like it needs to be packed with nutrients um, because a lot of the a lot of the horses we're keeping today meeting their energy and protein needs isn't the issue anymore it's fulfilling that foraging need without overdoing the energy and protein requirements and i'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of listeners on here go my horse is you know is my horse needs to gain weight I don't, what's this guy mm -hmm. talking about but mm -hmm. i like we see a lot a lot of diets and <laughs> the vast majority of the time you're like nah it's you know there's too much energy in these these diets for these horses like we're we're growing too good of haze and forages for what we're asking those horses to do. Um, so one of two things, like we need to like feed them less energy or start working them more. And I would lean more towards start working them more because uh, I think it's better for the horse and the horse owners, honestly. Yeah, that's that sounds yeah smarter. And I yeah, especially I'm guessing like for horses like that don't have a lot of space to move around on on their own time. The amount of calories that they need to burn in comparison to a horse who's in work and also on turnout would probably be a lot lower. I'm I'm assuming just from how much they can move around if they get if they're given the room. Yeah, I mean we have a with significant Mennonite population that lives just to the north of us, and, and I just and the re reason I bring this up is to put things in perspective for people because again, like well, I ride my horse an hour a day, five days a week, and they're like, so that's you know considered they consider that medium to almost heavy work mm -hmm. and I'm like that's not even close to heavy work for a horse like your, your horse is an oxidative machine with the capacity to do so much work um far more than will most people ever even come close to working them and which is why i bring up you know these horses pulling buggies you know 20 30 miles 40 miles a day wow uh, right <laughs> and they're doing it quite easily they look quite fit i mean you're like, yeah, they're well fed, they're well taken care of, they're and they're they're capable of performing this level of work. Um, so yeah, again, it's just increasing the amount of exercise always is, is always a good option. And that is totally off topic of forage alternatives. Yeah. <laughs> no, a, that's that's really interesting though, because it yeah, just the different energy requirements and whatnot. Um, and for the forage alternatives thing, I think that, like you've covered a lot of stuff related to food that would help people kind of troubleshoot um, anything like like hay shortages, for example. 
Um, uh, the last question I have for you is just regarding Tef hay because it's a newer hay and I just wanted to know your opinion on it because for the low sugar and stuff, it's getting popular here and I've started feeding it for my fat horse. Um, but <laughs> I, yeah, I was just wondering like from a nutritionist standpoint, what are the thoughts on that as like an up and coming hay that I'm assuming will start getting planted more now that a lot of people are buying it? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been fed a lot, and certainly in other countries, uh, as, as you mentioned, it's gaining popularity here. Um, again, any forage that meets the nutrient requirements of the horse and the, the uh, I guess, the psychological behavioral requirements of the horse is, yeah, absolutely, is a great choice to add in there. And Tef A fits, you know, kind of fits into that bill, yeah. fits into that uh, area. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this again. I think that's all of the questions I have to ask today. But um, yeah, that was really great. You you always help me learn so many things when you come on this podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on. I, again, I hope people find uh, value in it. Uh, again, we're always here to answer questions. And there's, fortunately, there's people a lot smarter than me working here uh, that can help out uh, <laughs> anybody that has nutrition related questions. That's great. Yeah, no, it has been helpful for a lot of people. I've gotten really good feedback on these podcasts because equine nutrition is something that I think a lot of horse owners don't really have access to learning because their trainers and barn owners control so much of what's going on in the diet related stuff. So I like the, the podcasts have gotten really good feedback and people have found it extremely helpful. And same with your diet analysis for that matter. Well, that's fantastic to hear. I'm, I'm very happy to hear it's a, uh... Yeah, we definitely encourage people to get their diets evaluated um, because unless you know what your horse is consuming, it's it's really hard to know if you're doing the right or, or where you need to change things. For sure. And yeah, you, you provide a very accessible option. So for anyone who's interested, Mad Barn does free diet analysis and you can go on their website to check that out. I'll link it in the podcast description. Um, and yeah, that's a great way to get a diet balance to see what you need to add for your horse. The, thing, the one thing I do want to add, because a lot of times we talk about this diet analysis, it's always about fixing problems or horses with issues. Like It's a great exercise, even if you have the most amazing looking horse that is completely healthy and is on the greatest nutrition program, just from a monitoring standpoint, okay. to put numbers to, like, put your, put numbers to why your horse is doing so well. So if down the road something does happen and you've got this kind of dietary history to go by you're like well this change and this change and we're a lot lower in protein now or something whatever it may be maybe you know it gives you a lot more insight to the to making sure your nutrition program is correct and then if things are changing or um, in a direction that you may not may not be great then at least you have the historical data to go yeah. from as well on that no, that's a really good point. I think that, yeah, for a lot of people listening to that, they should consider that because I hadn't thought about that either for my own horses. Um, but now that I have the diet analysis, that's definitely something that I'll do if any of them start having anything change, uh, especially since we're feeding the same hay and whatnot. So it'll stay the same. So that's a really good thought. <laughs> yeah. I have a whole podcast on things staying the same. Nothing ever stays the same. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, even no, you're like, oh, it's the same hay. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not the same. Yeah, <laughs> slightly different. I bet. Yeah, even if you just do flake by flake, I bet there'd be different um, levels for everything. Oh, but, the, the variation within is huge, which is why when like we talk about sampling, getting large samples is key because 
you know, if you you're, you you know take it from a microscopic level, you talk about the blind men and the elephant, that whole story. <laughs> you know, you, you need a bigger picture, uh, mm-hmm. particularly with nutrition, and particularly with hey, you, the you know our physical nutrition. There's great buffering system. You know, we've evolved to have amazing buffering systems where you can be nutrient deficient for a long time and still come out of it and be fine. Uh, so you really, when you're looking at a nutrition program, it's not about you know the micrograms per day of something. It's really long term, making sure we're within the you know these con you know within these yeah confines, I guess, and staying within it. it it's fine if it sways a little bit in and out once in a while. You just want to make sure it's not long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the time because yeah if you just do it flake by flake and took samples and sent them in you'd be like this isn't even the same hey what is this <laughs> so with with like a large sample for hay like how large is large like how how big of a sample are we talking for like the most accurate testing so we like to do up to 10 bales basically and oh, okay. not yeah. just 10 side by That's side fine. because there's a good chance those things came from like you know, if you have a whole mouth, try to get up to 10 bales in, in cord. So like using one of those probes that gets like goes through all the flakes, not all the whole bale necessarily, but, you know, a good two feet into it. Yeah. And even if you don't have that option, um, like one of the blog posts talks about this, but like if you grab handfuls and then you just cut basically the hay off each side of your hand. So you're just left with the width of your basically four inches of sample in your hand and drop that in a bag and then do that from uh 10 different bells at least that kind of gets you more representative okay. sample versus particularly like when you have mixed in almost everybody is going to have a mix um you know whether grass or even legume grass mix in their hay like it's almost unheard of to have a homogeneous um with the exception of maybe alfalfa yeah uh, <laughs> um hay so but again, you're going to have spots where one plant grows much better than the other and it'll totally outcompete it and it'll be all that one plant. Mm-hmm. And then you'll move, you know, a windrow or two over and the conditions will be quite different and you'll have a more heterogeneous mix of plants in there. And, and that's really why you want this whole kind of sample, like broad yeah. based sampling. Okay, perfect. That's, yeah, that's great to know. Thank you again. That's, yeah, so much to take away from this. Yeah. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, we always learn something on here. So I appreciate all the time you give um, to providing people with free resources uh, to learn about equine nutrition. Thank you for tuning into another Making Milestones podcast. I hope people enjoyed this one and that they learned something new. And yeah, stay tuned for more podcasts. I try to post as frequently as I can whenever I have motivation and I always appreciate the support if anyone is interested in supporting my business in other ways I do have a patreon channel that you can subscribe to for as little as a dollar a month for behind the scenes tutorials training help and more you just have to select a tier depending on what you're looking for and you can do that at patreon.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s s-d-equus and you can subscribe to that for as little as a dollar a month I also do have a bridal line and we've just restocked the bitless and bitted bridles so those are available for order on my friend's 
business website, the Amore Equestrian website, A-M-O-R-E, equestrian.ca. And they're under the milestone page where you can find my bridles, apparel, and more. We've also released some really cool summer base layers and summer shirts for riding in that are really cute. And I highly recommend checking them out. I've tried to keep prices affordable so that they are within the budget of all sorts of equestrians. And yeah, I recommend checking them out. Comfort and affordability and style was a huge priority of mine. Um, when making all that stuff so those are available we also have a bunch of our saddle pads on sale now because we're just trying to clear out products so highly recommend checking that out and i appreciate anyone supporting the business by listening to the podcast joining patreon sharing any of my posts sharing and reviewing the business side of things with our products purchasing products anything it's all super helpful and i really appreciate it we are still looking to move as much product as we can to try to catch up for Milo's vet bills because he does need to go in for an arthroscopy in the future. So I'm currently saving for that so that he can go and get that done. And then he should be up to date on everything he needs for the current like lameness explorations that we've been doing. He had his MRI. It went really well for anyone who missed the discussion about that. I do have a podcast that goes more in depth to that, but the results were basically best case scenario. So anyways, really appreciate it. Just looking to continue clearing up products. And I highly recommend checking that out and the Patreon out, especially if you're looking for training help. Patreon is the most affordable way to get that. There's a lot of tutorials that I already have live on there. So yeah, check that out. And thank you for listening.